It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I couldn't be more excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is my friend, Craig Elias. Craig is the creator of Trigger Event Selling and chief catalyst of Shift Selling, Inc., based up in Canada. And he's the co-author of the book, Shift Selling. Craig, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you very much, Andy. It is good to talk to you. So take a minute, introduce yourself. How, maybe tell us how you got your start in sales. Yeah, so actually I was a bartender and a guy I was a bartender with became a headhunter, and he uh, had a company that was looking for an inside sales guy. And he says, Craig, you just seem like someone who'd be a fit for this. So I went for an interview. And the funny thing is, um, I pretty much actually had a fight with the lady that I was being interviewed by. She a was phys- physical in- fight? Fisticuffs? A, 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 verbal, a verbal fight, a <laughs> confrontation. And she says, why do you want to be an inside sales? I said, I want to be an inside sales because I'm going to be an outside sales guy. And she says, but we have a program. We take engineers. We train them for two and a half or three years. They go into outside sales. I'm not looking for an outside sales guy. So I thought I lost the job, but I got it. And the crazy thing is that I lasted less than 60 days in the job until the national sales manager came to me and said, you belong in outside sales. I got promoted 90 days later and shipped halfway across the country. And that's how it happened. So what was wrong with you in inside sales? Um, Nothing wrong, but I was, you know, I was pretty organized. So the first thing I figured out is, as an inside sales guy, my cap was accounts up to $10,000. So the first thing I said to myself, if I'm going to make quota, I got to find those that are $1,000 or more. And I got to find a way to make them five or six or seven. And I basically prioritized my entire territory from an inbound perspective and being responsive, like you talk about. Mm -hmm. I'd still be responsive from an inbound perspective, but being proactive I was very proactive in reaching out to those that were between 1,002 or 1,005. And then one of the things that I got lucky with was the fact that I was in Toronto, so Eastern Canada, and all of my counts were Western Canada. So I didn't even come into work until 10.30 or 10, I think, and went until 7. But because all my customers were so far away, I learned to leverage the power of channels. So there are all these distributors in the geography. So I built these really good relationships with all these distributor people. And once I gave them a bunch of business, they would bring a whole bunch back. Yeah, <laughs> always a very wise strategy to leverage your, to leverage your channels and your efforts. Absolutely. So what were you selling? Uh, back then I was selling electronic componentry. So when you go to plug your... Uh, iPhone or Galaxy or Samsung device into your computer, there's a cable. And at the end of the cable are these two things called connectors. So my job was any form of electronic interconnect Mm -hmm. being at the end of a cable or between, you know, computer boards. My job was to work with people who were engineering stuff that was electronic and make sure that our parts got specified while they're going through the design phase. And when they went to production, then people just bought all that stuff because they had to. Got it. Okay. So how'd that lead you to writing this book, Trigger Events, or Shift well, Selling, which well, is about trigger shift. event selling? Yeah. So uh, like most lucky single sales guys, I got bounced around and then uh, got an opportunity I couldn't turn down. And I ended up going and helping a tech firm establish resale channels in Europe, Africa, and South Central America. And that led me back to Calgary. 
And I, one day I went to work for a tech firm and I went to join this firm uh, September 10th. So the day before 9-11, I went and joined this tech firm. And in less than six months, I became the number one salesperson in the entire country. But unfortunately, that company was called WorldCom. Do you remember mm. WorldCom? Well, yeah. <laughs> $11 billion in accounting fraud. I went from zero, to, I went from hero to zero in 21 days. And for the first time in my life, nobody would buy from me. And I couldn't figure this out. So what I did was I waited until August when I had some holiday time coming to me. And I took two weeks of holidays, but I took afternoons off for a month. And I looked back and I reflected on all my six, seven, and eight figure wins. And I figured three things out. And the first thing I figured out was that my close ratio was highest, about 80%, when I reached a very specific type of prospect. And these are the people that are in what I call a window of dissatisfaction. They are unhappy with what they have, but they're so busy solving other problems, they haven't gotten to this problem yet. And that was my first epiphany. And that took me like a week to figure out. But then here's what I couldn't figure out. What I couldn't figure out is how could somebody go from being a classic buying mode of status quo, which is happy and not looking on Monday, be in my window of dissatisfaction on Wednesday, and somehow start searching for alternatives on Friday. And it took me a couple of weeks to figure out that it was actually based upon an event. A very specific event would take someone who's happy and make them unhappy, but they're so busy they don't do anything about it. And once I figured out that first event, um, everything else just became easy. And I actually took what I had figured out, started a company that won a billion-dollar idea competition, got a million-dollar prize, ended up in California to collect the prize. But my wife lives in Calgary. She can't move. She plays French horn for the orchestra. And I moved down with the condition that we were trying to have a family. And if I got pregnant, or she got pregnant, rather, I would come back. And six months in, You're in I commuted back and forth. I, she got pregnant. I went back to the guy who gave me the million bucks and said, look, I love your money, but I love this lady more. And I am not. I am not going to be a successful entrepreneur with a ruined marriage and dysfunctional kids. So I left it all behind, went home, and everybody kept asking me to sort of come teach what I'd learned. But I wanted to stay focused on being a really good dad. And that's what led me to write the book. Okay. So what was that? Uh, what was that big event that the, that drives people through being happy through the window of dissatisfaction to being unhappy? Yeah. So there, these are events that make people want to change, and there's three forms of these events. I call them the ABCs of trigger events. The A is awareness. They become aware. Maybe there's a better way. So I look at economics. People say I'm better, faster, cheaper. Um, and, and this is something the challenger sales says you should do. And I just completely disagree. And we'll get to that at, at some point. The well, second well, one. Well, let's, is, not, let's not leave it. So they tell you you should do what? So the challenger sales says challenge the status quo, challenge the status quo, challenge the status quo. That, there's a problem with that. And, and I've got a really good quote from a senior person at uh, Salesforce who says they don't bother because it's not worth their time. But here's why it's not worth their time. So let's pretend that, I don't know, let's use Jill Conrad. So let's pretend you and Jill have a really good relationship. She is your customer. Oh, well, we do have a good relationship, but she's not my customer. Okay. Okay, but let's pretend she is for now, right? 
And I, who she doesn't know, let's pretend it's 2007 and we didn't know each other. I go to her with a really good idea. You have a much better relationship. She is highly likely to borrow. And I'm making any statement about Jill's integrity, but just people in general would say, hey, that's a really good idea. I'll go see if my existing vendor can do this sure. because you've, you've already got a relationship. Exactly. They trust you. you know, you're reliable. You share information. You have things in common, common interests, values, aspirations. She would rather do business with you than with me. So when the challenger sales says, go do this, I'm like, don't. The data I've seen says that if, and it's a big if, if you get a first meeting, once you told those people what you do and how you challenge their status quo, that on less than 7% of the time do you ever get a second meeting. So why do, you think, because, why do you think this is the case? Because they, they, they don't have a relationship. The person they're talking to is squarely in status quo, got a relationship with Andy, I'm happy with this. Right? I see no, uh, no reason to change, but if you have a really good idea, come tell me what your idea is so then I know and I can then maybe go give it to Andy or somebody else. <laughs> and I mean, I'm laughing because obviously this happens all the time. Yes. But by the same token, you also have you know, hordes of people and Challenger could be one of them, but I know many other people that say, gosh, when you get that first, we're not interested, we need to push harder. Um, so I'm not going to say push harder, but I do think there's something to be said for persistence. Okay. And, I, and, and, and this is where you have to really figure out whether it's worth your time or effort to being persistent. So I'm a big fan of being persistent with people that have three characteristics. A, money, so they have access to a budget. B, they have the authority to spend it. And C, they have influence. And the reason I like these people of money, authority, and influence, as soon as they have one of these events that I'm talking about, they want to change, guess what happens? They change really quickly. And anything you can do to start fostering that relationship today goes a long way to them calling you tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So we're, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow before, but we were okay. talking about the trigger, trigger events. Yeah, so three, three forms. Awareness, I'm better, faster, cheaper. Seldom works. The, the ones that do work uh, is risk avoidance. If doing business with you or doing business your way is somehow less risky than the way they are today, then they might think of looking at you. The one that comes around after that is around legislation. As soon as someone has to change, they will. So if there's new legislation coming up they might not know about, going around and sharing information about that change in legislation is an important piece. So that's the A for the ABCs of trigger events. Mm -hmm. The B, see the A is what prospects or uh, salespeople try to do B, the bad experience, is what the competition does. So very often, you know, someone's already entrenched, but there's a change in people, salespeople, customer service, right? A change in uh, places or a change in priority. Something changes within that, that their competitor. It might be the product. Maybe there's some material change where there's a merger or an acquisition. I have seen data that suggests that 28% of all vendor changes are triggered by a change in account manager. So soon as you and Jill have a really good relationship, right? You're the salesperson, she's the customer. You leave, someone takes your place. You had a really good relationship. You understood Jill's expectations. And if you ever did something stupid, Jill will call you and say, hey, Andy, go fix this. But someone takes your place, they don't have the same relationship. So they don't understand Jill's expectations. Therefore, they're more likely to disappoint her. Second of all, 
because you don't have a relationship or the new person doesn't have a relationship. Now what happens is Jill doesn't complain. She talks to the next person on her list. That's sort of what happens when there's a change in account managers. And in many cases, people already have a number two choice. And it's mm -hmm. amazing how, you know, oh, now that Craig is gone or now that Andy is gone, I'd rather go do business with that next person. Right. So, which, which speaks to something that I think is really elusive for many salespeople to understand is that decisions, and you refer to this in the work that you do in terms of this concept of emotional favorite, but, yeah. you know, decisions are primarily driven by emotion. Yeah. And... You know, the, the specific product uh, oftentimes comes in second place. Yeah. Um, and, he, and here's, so I'm, I'm just going to give the audience three key questions. So every time you change an account manager on an account you want to keep, I think that new person should go back to all the important in the account. And they need to ask three key questions. And the first question they need to ask is, what did my predecessor do that I need to keep doing? So if I took your place, I would say, what did Andy used to do that I need to keep doing? My second question is, what does the competition do that I should start doing? So sometimes the expectations of someone is set by others, not by you. So you want to understand what are those expectations. So question two again is, what does the competition or what do my competitors do that I should start doing. And my third question is, what does nobody do that you wish everybody did? And the first time I used these questions was, I took over an account in Vancouver, it was about $7 million, plan was to get it to 10, and I knew of these dynamics, and we had a pretty good relationship from the past, so I went to Every person I could think of in that account, there were quite a few of them, and asked those questions. And you were the new account manager in this case. And I was the new account manager, right? And what I learned was something really interesting. This was when email was just coming in to being used in the business world, like 96, 97, right? And people didn't trust it. So I'd have a really good relationship. They'd give me an opportunity to do something first. They'd email me because it's after hours or they don't want to get on the phone. And they said, Craig, you know what you can do for me? When I send you an email and ask you for something, just send me an email back and let me know when to expect an answer. And that's what I did. And all these engineers and senior managers would come to me first for a bunch of different reasons. And when I would respond right away, right, like the zero time selling mm -hmm. says I should, respond right away and say, I'm working on this. I'll have an answer by noon tomorrow. Or even if you say noon the day after, then they know when to expect it. And then deliver on time. List and deliver on time. They have a list of all these things they're trying to get to. And all of a sudden they go, okay, that one's done. I can count on Craig to deliver. Right. And think of the emotional connection you've created there. Oh. In the perception right? of the prospect's mind that this is somebody I want to do business with because they're reliable, dependable. They give me good value for the time I'm investing. That is so important. And I can count on them. So I love some of the work that Charlie Green does around being a trusted advisor. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, I've seen one of his white papers. Oh, I've seen several. But there's one in particular that I like. And I think it's something like, um, do you think expertise makes you more trusted? Think again. And he broke out all the different characteristics of the different people that were experts or in sales. And it turns out that there's one group that does extraordinarily well. They're called the doer. D-O-E-R, and they have two things that they have. He calls them I and R. I stands for intimacy. 
Intimacy is getting the prospect or customer to tell you things they don't tell anybody else. And the R stands for reliability. And, and what I've learned about this whole I piece about, again, in my world, it's called becoming someone's emotional favorite. But the whole I, the way you develop intimacy is by having things in common with the other person. As soon as you have common interests, common values, common aspirations, all of a sudden they'll tell you stuff they don't tell anybody else. One of my favorite examples is when I used to live in North Vancouver, had an account on Vancouver Island, and it's a, it's quite a, it takes quite a while to get there because you've got to drive to the ferry terminal, get on a ferry, get to the side, drive 25 minutes. So before you even go see the customer, you killed almost four hours, and you've got to do that backwards on the way home. So I went and saw them. And to create that reliability thing, the first thing I said is, I'll be here every other week. And they all laughed, right? No way, not going to happen. <laughs> and I was there. Right. I saw the potential in this account. Every other week, I went, I went, I went. And then one occasion, I learned I liked a mountain bike. I was a pretty hardcore mountain biker. So I would take my bike, and I would go over, go mountain biking with them after work. And then on one occasion, someone said, you know what? We've always wanted to go mountain biking in Whistler. I'm like, Whistler? I'm like, there every other weekend. Why don't you guys come over? And we'll go mountain biking in Whistler. And 21 of them came over for a weekend of mountain biking in Whistler. That account went from 60 grand to $3 million less than three months after that happened. But I think one of the things that's important, and you can share, I think share this with the audience, is that you can develop the intimacy even within the context of a business relationship. I mean, you don't have to take people out to dinner or go mountain biking, which is certainly fabulous if you get that level of, of relationship. But you can do that within the context of you know, the time that people are willing to give you as well. You can, but I'm, and, and I'm not disagreeing, but what I have found that I agree with Charlie Green's work is that the more you actually have in common with the other person, the more likely they are to like you. So sure. if you both like to mountain bike, sail, drink red wine, put your career on hold for several years to raise your family, these are the kind of bonds that people have. And people would just say, I'd rather do business with someone who's like me than someone who isn't. Right, but I'm saying those conversations, because a lot of people listen to this. You know, they they may not have that opportunity or the means, you know, to have a relationship with a customer outside the bounds of the work hours. But um, but they can develop, but they can develop those commonalities and those discussions that they have. Oh yeah, I totally agree. I mean, yeah. here's the here, and you have to be aware. You have to be open and aware, and that's what we talk about being present with the customers. Yeah, you know, if you're in a face to face meeting, you look at what's in their desk and their office, and and there's all sorts of clues there of things that you can start talking yeah. about that can start developing that bond. I totally agree, but here's, so I learned something actually, I learned something about sales from my stepmom. So my dad went to live with my step, who's like, she wasn't my stepmom back then, but went to live with my lady who's now my stepmom. And I would phone all the time and go, hi Jill, is my dad there? Hi Jill, is my dad there? Hi Jill, is my dad there? And she would, one day she said, don't you ever just want to talk to me? And I was like, <laughs> wow, that's interesting. So I've, I've learned. So here's what happens. If you were a prospect of mine and I phoned you on Monday, what do you think is the first question I'm going to ask you? How was your weekend? Yeah, what did you do on the weekend? Now, if you're my prospect and I phone you on Friday, what's the first thing I'm going to ask you? What do you got planned for the weekend? Yes. Like, you see how easy that is? Well, I, I agree 100%. I do that. And it's funny how many people these days say, oh, that's such a waste of time. You don't do that. Don't waste the prospect's time. They don't want to talk oh. about it. And I think that's wrong. People are still people. <laughs> people are interested in people. I don't know who teaches it. You know what also drives me crazy? Um, so here's what else. Uh, somebody teaches this. I don't know how. I don't even know why. But I'm amazed how many younger people in sales today will send you an email, and there is no freaking phone number in their email signature. 
I am going somewhere. I'm driving. I can't text and drive, but I've got a Bluetooth visor. I can talk and drive. I would love to talk to you and have a conversation and say what I might be interested in, but you make it so hard to be your customer, I can't phone you. I'm like, why? Yeah, no. I don't get Yeah, I mean, that's just one. Again, I think there's this, this, I know there are trainings, and I'm not going to name names, but trainers that... And books that say, look, you know, customer's time is so precious. So I certainly advocate that it is. But at the end of the day, it's still a business of people buying from people. And the no like trust equation is still very prevalent. And yeah, you have to take the steps to make develop that and cultivate that. Yeah. So let's let's get back to a little bit about um trigger events because yeah. you've got some very specific trigger events you look at when you've built a list of people that are your sort of target prospects. Yep. And why don't you share with those what those are with people? Yeah, so this actually comes back to an earlier conversation. The ABCs, the trigger events, awareness, bad experience, and the C stands for change. The change inside the organization, a change in decision maker, a change in people, places, and priorities. I'm, I'm going to touch on places for a second, and then I'm going to go back to my favorite one, which is a change in people. But one of my favorite examples is actually a lighting company. A lighting company was trying to get into a retail chain. They had new lighting, LED lighting, very inexpensive, pays for itself in a very short period of time. And they had this large retail chain they were trying to get into. Couldn't get in, couldn't get in, couldn't get in. And then one day, one day, that retail chain went to open a location in a town that had just enacted some new legislation that said you're not allowed more than two watts of lighting per square foot of retail space. And all of a sudden, the old lighting wouldn't work. So there's that legislation piece, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens is they go put the lighting in that one location, right? They save a whole bunch of money. But the lighting company was really smart. They sent somebody in six months afterwards, and they did some analysis. And what they found out was that in that store, sales were 21% higher than the average, and they uh, gave credit to that to the lighting. What do you think happened to every other store in the retail chain? Sure, they wanted to buy it. Went to buy. But it wasn't until there was a change in places where there was new legislation where the old stuff they had didn't work. Right? Now, my favorite one is a change in decision makers. And this happens all the time. So a new VP comes in. They want to prove that they're good. They're going to shake things up. They're going to make new decisions. So I've seen some research that says, and I think it's Discover Org who has the data, that basically says, when a new VP comes in and says they're going to make changes, of all of those VPs that will make a million dollars worth of decisions or more in their first year, so of all of them, um, 80% of those that are going to make a million dollars worth of decisions or more in a year, 80% of them do within the first 90 days. So it's really important to find a way to reach the decision makers that are new in their role. So some of my favorite ways, I have a saved search that I put up on LinkedIn. So my network is, I don't know, first degree, 21,500 people on LinkedIn. I'm user 3,956 of 450 million users. I've been on it now for over 13 years. And I have a saved search, and saved searches are free. You get three of them, even with a free account. Um, I do a saved search and say, tell me anytime someone has a title of VP of sales. So it builds me a list and says, here's all the VPs of sales in your network. And then a week later, it sends me a notification. Guess what? You have 128 new VPs of sales in your network. So now I know I have all these new VPs of sales in a network. And for every single one of them that I'm aware of, 
There are four opportunities that come out of each of them. So I'm going to use the Beatles as an example. Okay. So let's assume that I have this guy named John. Okay. He's in my network and I learn he's now got a new job as a VP of sales. So opportunity number one is to reach out to John. Because if he bought from me before, odds are he will buy from me again. Opportunity number two is to figure out who did John replace? Because that person has recently moved into an organization, into a role. They now have more money, more authority, and more influence than they had on their old role. I want to find out where um, they landed. So John, turns out, replaced a guy named Paul. So I talked to Paul. He's doing his job. Like it to change. Now, at some point, Ringo replaces John. So when Ringo goes into his new job, there is one question I think everybody should ask Ringo the first time they talk to him or go visit him. And that question is, where did you come from? Because that tells you there's a vacancy that somewhere between the next 30, 90 days, that person will get filled with another new person who is likely to change. And it turns out in this case, that guy's name is George. So LinkedIn safe searches. Every one of these for me creates an opportunity. And I'm just going to give you some data or some numbers around this. So what, what I can trust is some census, U.S. census data that tells me 3% of people change jobs every single month. So if I started with a list of 100 prospects mm-hmm. and I started tracking, for along comes January, three new people in their job, three people they replaced, I got six opportunities. February comes along, same thing again, plus maybe the role from before, there's a whole bunch of new Georges in the role. If you start tracking all those job changes and the whole ripple effect or domino effect, within a year from just 100 initial people, you end up with 270 different prospects just from that list of 100. If you do the same thing for two years, it's 972. And my question is, what would happen if you had a list of 200? or 300, or 500. And now you're cherry picking opportunities instead of you know, desperately chasing them. So that's um, one of the things. One of my favorite tools for doing stuff like this, um, there's a guy named Matt Benatti, and I hope I'm pronouncing his last name properly. He's got something called Lead Gnome, G-N-O-M-E, Lead right. Gnome. Right. And what they do is they analyze all your inbound email. And they look for a couple of things. A, I'm out of town, contact this person instead. So now you're expanding your reach with an organization. The thing to look for is they look for, uh, Andy has left the company, please reach out to Craig. Now, bounced emails, you can do lots of services to track which email address bounds, but I think people don't turn an email address off for at least six to nine months after the person has left. Right, typically. But these, but these notifications, there's someone new in their job, those are done probably within less than 15 days. So something like lead gnome that allows you to analyze emails and just be notified. This is what I call or what I've heard called exception-based reporting. I just want all the emails I get back. I just want to know when someone says that person has left the job and they have the data, right? And the analytics to look at your inbound emails and say, hang on a second. You should talk to Andy because Craig has left and he's now taken his job. Very cool. 
Yeah, I think the whole prospecting thing you laid out, the sort of the exponential growth effect you have, if you just track these changes, what's happening in, in your connecting, yeah, your safe searches, let's say at a VP level, the math is pretty compelling. And, and it, it floors me that almost nobody does it. But here's the, here's the trick. I think the trick is when you phone somebody for the first time, you need to have what I call a seven-second sale. You need to say something in such a way that people are going to ask you a question, how? How do you do that? So whether you get them on the phone or if it's a voicemail, and I'm a fan of leaving voicemail, you would just go, hi, Andy, my name's Craig, and I have a really simple way for more of your reps to make quota. Or I have a really simple way for your rep, reps to eliminate this. Focus on the verbs that describe the value of being your customer. Don't use nouns that describe the product that you sell. Yep. And all of a sudden, people are interested, and they'll call you back. Very good. We just had a great conversation about trigger events, selling, or move to the last segment of the show where I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And the first one is really a hypothetical scenario. And in this scenario, you, Craig, you're the star. Yes. You're the star. And you've just been hired as a new vice president of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out. Okay. And the CEO and the board are really anxious for things to start turning around quickly. So your first week on the job, what two things could you do that have the biggest impact? First thing I'm going to do, I'm going to take all my sales reps. And I'm going to have them analyze all the deals they've won in the last 30 to 60 days. I want to know what makes people win. I'm not a fan of a lost sales analysis. I'm a fan of a one sales analysis. And there's basically four questions that matter. Go back to every deal that we've won in the last little while, the bigger, the better. And get the salesperson to ask their key contact four questions. One, what was the event or what were the events, think of them as changes, that led up to this purchase? People tell you about that event. You ask that question, they'll tell you about the second event where they could afford the time or money to buy it. Mm -hmm. So. Then you need to ask the second question. The second question is, when did these events happen? And what you're listening for now is, what was the first event that made people want to change? Question number three, what made you choose us? I do not ask why questions. What I've been told and what I believe is why questions make people defensive. What made you choose us? Salespeople use content, nouns, right? The customer has context they begin to understand what's the real value of being your customer. And when you ask that question, what you're listening for are the verbs that describe the value of being your customer. Let me give you an example. A tire company sells really expensive tires. It turns out customers buy really expensive tires because they end up having the highest on-time delivery statistic. And they know that, their, that the trucking firm knows that their customers care about on-time delivery. So when something's urgent or important, they always call the person with the best on-time delivery statistic, and price is never the issue. Mm -hmm. So question number three, what made you choose us? Listen for verbs. Question number four, how can we make it easier to become our customer? People have, when they, when they have an event, they want to change. But the longer it takes them to become your customer, the more likely something else will become important. Or what happens is the emotion dissipates and it's too much effort to become your customer and they're no longer interested. So that's question number four. How do we make it easier to become our customer? Question number five, this is the last one. Question number five is on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you with the process and the purchase? 
that you made. And if someone doesn't give you an eight, you want to ask, what would it take to make it a 10? Because you want to make sure that now you've got them as a customer, you're going to keep them in the status quo for what you have. So the first thing I'm going to do, one sales analysis. Mm -hmm. um, second thing I'm going to do, um, the second thing I'm going to do, I don't know if, or I'm going to assume at this point that the organization doesn't do a really good job of outbound prospecting. I'm going to make sure that the people that uh, I that report to me, they're going to remove all the fluff, all the crap out of their funnel that's never going to close. They're just hoping it will. It's a guy named Tom Batchelder. Mm -hmm. He has a website called Stoll Deals. He's got a really simple way to get all the crap out of your sales funnel so you have more time to chase new deals. That's the second thing I would do. All right. Good enough. Good answer. Great answer. So some more rapid-fire questions. You can be wondering answers, or you can elaborate if you wish. The first one is when, when you, Craig, are out selling, when you sell your own services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? My most powerful sales attribute. My ability to make my whatever I sell relevant to the other person to make them want it. They can see how what I have relates to what they want to get done. Who's your sales role model? Uh, sales role model. Do I have a role model? Um, let's can, can I pretend this is one of those things you have to have 10 answers in 10 minutes or 10 seconds? Let's come back to that one. I'll think about that while I answer okay. the questions. Okay. That? We've got two more, so we'll come back to that okay. one. So other than your own, one book every salesperson should read. Um, so I'm going to do two things. I'm going to cheat. So first of all, there's one chapter in one book every person should read before they ever start sales. It's chapter four in spin selling, pages 65 to 95. You can get it on the internet, say spin selling PDF. It helps people understand not just the situation or the problem, but the implication of that problem. When you understand the implication, people are more likely to buy. So flat out, 100%, go read chapter four of spin. Now, when you've done that, there's a book called Never Be Closing by two guys named Tim. Tim Dunn and Tim something or other. I've forgotten his last name. Tim he was in Barcelona. Tim Hurst. Yeah, Tim, right? Uh, which, one's in, which one's in Barcelona? One's in Barcelona. Well, one's in Canada, so. Yeah, one's in Toronto. One's, I'm going to Barcelona and San Sebastian for my 10th anniversary, so I'm hoping to see them in person. But oh. they wrote a book called Never Be Closing. And in there, they use a really good analogy of a snake oil salesman who has to establish credibility. How do you find a way to establish credibility with somebody new as fast as humanly possible? And there's so much good stuff in that book. Like I have highlighted, underlined, dog-eared that book. There's so much good stuff in that book. It is the only sales book I have ever read twice. Okay, that's a good recommendation. All right, so last question, unless we go back. Are you ready for the sales role yeah. model yet? Not yet. Okay, you've only got one more question to answer before I go yeah. back to it. And this is, what music is on your playlist right now? Uh, what music is on my playlist? Wow, it was so. I'm learning how to play some Beatles, funnily enough. I've been taking guitar lessons for four years. I still suck. My 11-year-old son, he's a rock star. So uh, Let It Be is on my playlist. <laughs> right? Trying to master that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, I see big picture and patterns. So for me to look at an individual note and play that note uh, and a guitar, it is one of the hardest things for me to do. It's, I just struggle with it. Um, so role model, you know, if I think of role models, the, the, I come at this from, I have three that come to mind right away, and they're all very similar. 
And, and all of them do the same thing. So Jim Carrey was in a movie called The Majestic once. Yep. Uh, and he gets in front of a Senate committee and they want to know who are the people of this party. And he pretty much says, go f- yourself. Um, Steve Jobs, in some respects, is the same way. Nelson Mandela, right? So I, there's only twice I have cried when people died that I did not actually personally know. Steve Jobs was one. He died when I was teaching an entrepreneurship class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was telling the class that I cried. And I cried when Nelson Mandela died. And, and what I love about those two as role models and Steve in this piece, uh, this movie, is that there are these unique people who do what is right. It is not what is easy. It is not what is popular. And sometimes it's not even what's going to make you rich, but they do what is right. And I think from a sales perspective, one of the things that always served me well is if there is not a rock solid fit between what I'm selling and what the prospect wants, I will help them find another way to solve the problem. Those are my role models. Excellent. All right. Great answers. So, Appreciate you being on the show today. Tell people how they can find out more about you. Uh, just go to the internet. Type in Craig Elias. My phone number is on my LinkedIn page. If you want a free copy of my book, just go to shiftselling.com forward slash friends, like the old TV show. Um, and if you have any questions and just want to pick my brain, I give away 15, 20-minute pieces at no charge. Just text me or call me. It's one for North America, if you're out of North America. And it's 403-874-2998. Text me. I will probably call you back within five minutes or less. I think you will. Yeah, great. Craig, again, thanks for joining me. Andy, a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And the easy way to do that is make this podcast accelerate a part of your morning routine, whether you listen on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Craig Elias, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.